1: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen.
0: See my pleading dying
1: Scripture this morning is from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. If you want to follow along in the Blue Pew Bible, it's on page 846. It's Mark 10: 35 to 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able...
2: We had VBS at the church. And I know, and this is the unfortunate thing about VBS, is that uh, most of you don't get to enjoy it because it's during the week, so most don't get to attend. And those that did get to attend really only get to see that Friday night VBS roundup where all the parents come around. Now, if you missed out on the week, then you missed out on one of the real gems, one of the real highlights. And that highlight was our senior pastor, Darwin Jordan, playing the character of Ronnie the Rooster. Um, We can talk about Darwin because he's gone here. Um, How many kids, just out of curiosity, saw Ronnie the Rooster? The whole week? Some back here? Good. Okay. Yeah, because Friday night you kind of saw Ronnie the Rooster post-conversion. You didn't get to see him in all his glory during the week. Ronnie the Rooster was this arrogant, cocky, pompous Olympic swimmer, who was also a rooster, with this introductory song and dance that would send chills up your spine. Uh, He would come in from the back. I would imitate it now, but I would lose all credibility up here if I did. Uh, He would mock his opponents, myself included, and he cared only for his own success and glory. That was what characterized him all week until his conversion on Friday morning. Now, Ronnie was over the top. I mean, it was was success, self-glory, self-love, seeking status to an extreme. Certainly over the top. But, I would say I think we're probably more like Ronnie than we would expect. And maybe even more so than we'd like to think. For instance... Think about how many times in a given day you seek to advance yourself. Just drawing attention to yourself here and there. Maybe a little exaggeration, a little white lie. Somebody says something incorrectly and it makes you look better. Maybe it's something, uh, just a little jealousy or a hint of bitterness when you hear about the other girl getting the scholarship rather than you. Or this other guy getting the promotion. Or this guy making the team, and you get cut. Make it even worse, maybe it's one of your friends. So you have this little bit of jealousy towards them. It's hard for you to be excited for them. Now those may seem like tried examples. Uh, they happen all the time. But this is where that self-love and a desire to attain status and glory for ourselves shows itself. It's in these everyday Seemingly mundane, ordinary things of life. And the question I want to ask this morning is why? Why do we feel the necessity of that? Why do we feel the need to advance ourselves, to make ourselves look better? Why do I need to receive recognition for the work that I've done? Why do I need to say something funnier than you? Why do I need to win the argument no matter how silly the content is? Why do I need to be right all the time? The reason we feel that compulsion to constantly advance ourselves and make ourselves look better is a fundamental disbelief in the Gospel. We've got a problem in how we understand the Gospel. It's that basic. It's that simple. We've placed our worth and our value in some sort of identity that we can earn and that we can maintain ourselves. It's something that we have uh, done rather than receive this identity that is ours in Christ, that's given to us freely. So we lose sight of Jesus in this, and we turn back in on ourselves. The focus constantly becomes on ourselves. And if you notice, that's what underlies all of these issues. It's me. It's a love for me. A love for myself. That's what underlies every idol of our hearts is a love of ourselves. And that's really all I'm concerned with is me. That's why I want the most prestigious position. That's why I want to think, I want people to talk about how great I am. That's why I want power, that's why I want control. That's why I want people to miss me when I'm gone. All those cases, it's all about me. I love myself. And it's in that sense that we all are like Ronnie the Rooster. And what we have in this passage today is Jesus teaching on relationships in the kingdom. And what He describes them as is the exact opposite of that. This focus on ourself is completely opposed to what He's calling us to here. He's calling us to something utterly different. And He doesn't just call us to it, and this is really important. He gives us both a pattern to follow... But He also gives us the means by which we can attain it. So it's not just a bare call here. It gives us a pattern as well. Jesus giving His life as a ransom for many frees us from that slavery of self-love. And it actually enables us to really love people. It enables us to actually care about other people. And I want to look at this under uh, three broad headings here. One, our self-love. 2 Jesus is self-giving, and third, our self-giving. So first, our self-love. We get a vivid, really almost comical example of this in our text from James and John here. Let me set the stage here. You've got all of them heading to Jerusalem here. If you look back to verses 32-34, through your Bible probably has something about Jesus foretells His death a third time. So they're on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus is again talking about His death. Here's what He says. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. And after three days, He will rise again. So it's a pretty somber few sentences there. Pretty accurate description down to the details of what's going to happen to Jesus. So he's just finished saying this. We've got to keep that in mind. And James and John approach him. And look what he says, or what they say to him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, I'm a person who gets embarrassed for other people. People say things awkwardly. They say foolish things. Even on TV, like in movies, there are times where I just can't even watch it anymore. It happens on like American Idol when people are embarrassing themselves terribly. I can't watch. It's hard to watch. That's almost what's happening here. You just think, do you guys really mean that? You're really going to ask this question right now. Who says that? Who does that? Look how Jesus responds though. Much more gracious in His response probably than what we would expect. Rather than just calling them out for this, for this ridiculous statement, He asks them a question. What do you want me to do for you? Now the answer to that question is going to say a lot about James and John. This is going to lay bare their motives in in making that initial request. And one commentator points out that this same question could and should be asked of us. What is it that you really want? What do you want Jesus to do for you? It's something to think about. Listen to, uh, to how they respond here in verse 37. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, again, think back to verses 33 and 34. It's almost like they haven't heard anything He said here. They've got in mind some sort of triumphant earthly kingdom where He could come in maybe with power and force and sit ruling over all of creation. Now, He's going to do that in, in, in the end But they don't understand His way now. So they've got this this misconception of what Jesus' glory is really like. They've got no category for a Messiah who would come and be crucified. No category for it whatsoever. There's no way they could understand that as actually revealing Jesus' glory. So they don't understand what He's just said. And they really don't understand what Jesus has been saying up to this point. He said things like this throughout all of His time with the disciples, and they still don't get it. So they've got this this ridiculous request. They're they're blinded by their self-love and their desire to sit in these places of honor and glory. So it's a ridiculous request, but it made sense to them because of how they thought about Jesus' glory. It made sense to them. When I was seven years old, I was in the middle of losing my baby teeth, and as is probably the custom at your house... The tooth fairy comes to visit when you lose a tooth. Some people do the uh, tooth under the pillow. We never did that. We always put it on the nightstand. I think it's easier for the tooth fairy to get to there. So you leave your tooth on the nightstand, and then you wake up the next morning, the tooth is gone, and you've got a $1 bill there. Great. I'm losing teeth, making money, not worried about this. This is so cool. So, my seven year old mind gets going, and I start thinking, why just a dollar? Why is it only a dollar? Why not ask for more money? This comes from the tooth fairy. So, the next time that I lose a tooth, I decided I would ask for more money. One million (laughs) dollars, to be exact. So, and again, I was seven, so I had to have my mom help me write a note to the tooth fairy. Asking for a million dollars. I didn't know how many zeros you needed on a million dollars. And this whole request made perfect sense to me. It comes to me freely here. And I went to bed that night, literally confident that I was going to be a millionaire the next morning. And the only thing I could think is, why hasn't somebody thought of this before? This is so great. So I wake up the next morning and find a one dollar bill there again. And unfortunately, no explanation from the tooth fairy of what happened. Now, obviously, that's a ridiculous request. But here it made complete sense to me. We can look at James and John and see this is a ridiculous request. But the way they understood who Jesus was, what His glory was like, what He was going to do, in light of that, it made sense to them. They knew He was going to be in this high position of honor and glory. And they thought, why not ask for these prestigious positions? Why not ask to sit in these places of honor? And it's here in their request, in the motive behind their request, that we can identify with James and John. Because that's our default mode. It's to seek to advance ourselves. This is who we are by nature. It's been this way since the fall. We're consumed with ourselves. And this is so much the case that that I would say it's almost like we can't help but think about ourselves. At least that's the way it feels sometimes. And thats I would even call it slavery for that reason. Because it feels like you can't do anything about it at times. That's just who we are. And now this really shows itself in how we treat one another. Have you ever thought about why it's so difficult to love people? I mean, really thought about it. The reason that we don't love other people, one of the reasons at least, is that we love ourselves more. If I don't stand to gain in this relationship, then I'm not going to put the time into it and I'm surely not going to sacrifice something that I want. That's the problem. And if you look in our passage, this same thing happens uh, with the disciples. Look at verse 41. This is uh, when the other ten hear what James and John have asked Jesus They began to be indignant at James and John. Now, we might think, yeah, they're upset with them because they've made this ridiculous request. I don't think that's what's going on here. They're probably upset because there are only two positions of honor here. And if James and John are in them, then that means that these other ten will not be in these positions of honor. And they could have just been upset that they didn't think to ask first about that. So you can see already... They've got this this relational problem because of their self-love. Now, this may be most sobering, I think, when you think of those closest to us. It's one thing to think about people you don't know very well that might be difficult to love. But think about those that are closest to you. Now, during our better moments, during my better moments, of course I want to love my wife. I want to be patient with my children. I want to care my friends. The problem, though, is that my own self-love overrides that. It trumps that when it comes down to it. And this hit me in a fresh way earlier this spring. And here's how I noticed. It's when those close to me would experience something wonderful, when they would have something that was a genuine blessing in their lives, it was difficult for me to get excited for them, to rejoice with them. It's one thing to think, yeah, it's difficult to suffer with people and to, to bear with them in their difficulties and really enter into their suffering and love them through that. That's one thing. But when you can't even get excited for somebody else's blessing, then that really shows an attitude of self-love. And this really, it hit me so hard. and It, it felt almost paralyzing. And I began to see how much of what I do is motivated by my love of self. And I know that may not seem that profound or that insightful because we all experience that. But this was at a a whole new level. It was something deeper than anything I had felt before. And it really does feel paralyzing. It feels like slavery almost. You feel helpless there. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. We're not stuck in that position. He didn't leave James and John in this position. He didn't leave the ten disciples in this position of their self-centeredness and self-seeking. Look how He responds to them in verse 38. He talks here about the cup that He'll drink and the baptism with which He'll be baptized. And both of these things refer to His death. So He points them to His own death. And He gives us this hugely important statement in verse 45. And we'll go ahead and skip to that right now and take a look, a closer look at it. You've probably, you may have even memorized this verse before. This is a very, very important verse. It says, "...for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many." Jesus points to His own mission, His own purpose, as the reason that our self-love and our self-centeredness is out of place. It doesn't line up with what Jesus is doing here. It doesn't line up with His purposes in the world. It runs contrary to them in every way. He came not to be served, but to serve. And that's the foundation of His words to the disciples here. I want to look at this in two parts quickly. First, He came not to be served, but to serve. And something significant we've got to remember here is that with this title of Jesus in Mark, the Son of Man, that comes from Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, there's this great picture of who the Son of Man is. He says this, "...and to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him." So the Son of Man could have rightly come and said, I'm going to be served. Eventually, every knee will bow to Him. But He could have come initially and said this. And in our minds, this makes sense. He should be exalted. But that's not what He did, though. If you remember from our call to worship this morning from Philippians 2, Paul says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Now, This should blow our misconceptions of Jesus out of the water. He came not with this heavy-handed military power that the disciples expected Him to. And if we really think about that, that runs so contrary to what we'd expect. Possibly even to the point of making us a bit uncomfortable. And if it doesn't make us uncomfortable, we might have grown a little callous to it. He certainly made His disciples uncomfortable with these sorts of statements. And in fact, the first time Jesus predicted His death in Mark's Gospel, Peter tries to pull Him aside and say, no, you can't say that. He tries to rebuke Him, is what the text says. That's how uncomfortable the disciples were with it. They were trying to get Him to stop saying things like this. The Messiah can't be one who's going to be crucified. How can the very Son of God, the legitimate King of all creation, take the place of a slave? And this is, again, one of those parts of Christianity that's so counterintuitive. It runs against what we would think. So there's the self-giving that's at the heart of who Jesus is and at the heart of the mission that He came to accomplish as well. Maybe the best picture of this, aside from His actual death, is in John 13 where Jesus washes the feet of His disciples. This is a job of a slave. It's a job that nobody wanted to do. I wouldn't have wanted to do it. You wouldn't have wanted to do it. And the reason is this. They wore sandals at the time. They're walking through the streets, these dusty, dry streets. So they're coming in probably with dirt, with mud, maybe even manure on their feet. So it, was not, it wasn't just dip your feet in the bathtub. This was a pretty nasty job. When I was 15... I began my first job. I was a sacker at a grocery store called High V. But my official title, though, was a courtesy clerk. And the difference between a courtesy clerk and a bagger is that I was also in charge of cleaning the public restrooms. It's not a fun job. That was obviously the part I liked the least. Um, That gets us, though, probably at a more modern day example of foot washing. It would be like saying that Jesus came to clean toilets. Now, that could be offensive to think about, that Jesus came to clean toilets. But that discomfort you might feel with me saying something like that is the exact discomfort, probably even more so, what the disciples felt as Jesus got down before them on his knees, tied a towel around him, and began washing their feet. Very uncomfortable. Something that we wouldn't expect Jesus to do. This is the very Son of God who performed this act. And He told His disciples to do likewise. So the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. We'll look at that second part. To give His life as a ransom for many. Again, this is at the heart of Jesus' mission in the world. He took on flesh in order that He would eventually die. would die the death of a criminal. And this is how Mark describes it here. He he uses the word ransom. And it's an important word. the, The word behind that means something along the lines of the price for the release of a slave. One commentator says it this way, the essential meaning is deliverance by the payment of an equivalent. Jesus died in the place of His people. He's saying in verse 45, I will lay down my life for you. I will die in your stead. I will take the punishment that your sins deserve. The wrath of my Father against sin is going to be exhausted on me. The wrath that you rightly deserve will be poured out on me. The prophet Isaiah says it this way, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Now it's Jesus' words in verse 45 that are the basis for his admonition to us. This is the foundation for why he is going to call us to serve as we are called to. Now, why is this the case? How is this the foundation? Jesus' death on the cross is the heart of the gospel, it's at the center of the gospel. It was a death for sinners. It was a death for selfish and undeserving people like you and me. We have to to keep that in mind. Now, this is what's so liberating about the Gospel is that you don't deserve it. There's nothing we've done to earn it. There's nothing we've done to deserve it. In fact, we've done the opposite. We've done everything not to deserve it. But at the same time, that's what's so liberating is that the Gospel delivers us from this focus on ourselves. The Gospel gets us over ourselves like nothing else. The focus shifts from us to Jesus, the One to whom we're united. Tim Keller calls this blessed self-forgetfulness. And that's a really helpful phrase. It's not that you begin thinking poorly of yourself or thinking less of yourself, nor is it that you start thinking more highly of yourself Rather, you begin thinking about yourself less. And He gets that from C.S. Lewis. That's his definition of humility. And this is what only the gospel can do for us. This is our only hope to move beyond this paralyzed slavery of self-love. And it's when that self-forgetfulness actually takes root in us that we actually begin believing this, that we can actually move into the lives of others. And genuinely love them in ways that would really be literally impossible without that you can actually lay down your life, your priorities, your comfort, your desires, your perceived needs, all of these things to actually begin caring for other people and so notice why Jesus is saying what he is about his death here if you 'll notice he mentions this at the end of this very this very important verse is. Is, it's not tacked on at the end, but he, he has it at the end of His words to His disciples. So he's, he's setting forth His own mission of coming not to be served, but to serve as the pattern for us to follow. So our self-giving, our third point here, is to be patterned after Christ's self-giving. That's what Jesus is actually saying in this passage. We talk a lot about the atonement based on verse 45, and we should But Jesus is actually using it here as a pattern for us to follow. Our life is to be patterned after the cross. That's what He says. It's to be rooted in the cross. Our our mission is to be Christ's mission here. So I want to look briefly at that mission. What He calls us to here. Look at verse 42. He begins by contrasting this life in the kingdom with the world's way of doing things. He speaks specifically here of these Gentile political leaders. He says they lord it over them. They exercise authority over them. They're, they're manipulating. They're hungry for power. They're using people as pawns in their game. This is how they lead. This is what they're doing. And this is how the world works. Because this is, how, this is the direction that our hearts are naturally inclined. It's going to be towards this manipulation of people rather than an actual loving of them. And this is the problem with James and John. This is the problem with the ten disciples. This is the problem that you and I have. He says this, "...whoever would be great among you must be servant, must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all." These ways of the Gentile leaders, these ways of the world, these ways of leadership have no place in the kingdom. It shall not be so among you, He says. So, what Jesus is doing here is He's taking the disciples and really our conception of the normal way of doing things be this hierarchy where you have those at the top who have real power and authority and He's flipping it on its head. He's turning everything upside down. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Become a servant of all. You want to be number one, you want to be first, hold this position of honor, become a slave to all. And I I mean, obviously, we can see how upside down that is, how counterintuitive that is. And this is why he finishes this call with verse 45, that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, the ethics of Jesus' kingdom, what he calls us to, could not be more unnatural to us in that way. Could not be more countercultural than that. This turns the world's hierarchy upside down, it messes everything up. All bets are off. The pathway up is really the pathway down. The way to glory is actually the way of service and humility. It's flipping it all upside down. Sinclair Ferguson says it like this, "...in the kingdom of God, true greatness is measured by our service, not by the number of our servants. It is seen not in how high up the ladder we have climbed, but how far down the ladder we're prepared to climb for the sake of others. True discipleship has at its heart letting go of our desire for honor in this world in order to bestow honor on others." And there's one part here in closing that I want to, of Jesus' statement that I want to draw particular attention to. It's just one word that comes at the end of verse 44. It's the word all. Jesus intends for us to become slaves of all. There's no favoritism here. There's no favoritism based on social status. There's no favoritism based on economic status. There's no favoritism based on race. All of these things are out of place. He doesn't allow us any wiggle room here at all. Now think about this. What sort of people did Jesus gravitate to? Almost exclusively, really. They were those of questionable character. They were thieves. They were tax collectors. They were lepers. They were prostitutes. They were those who were ceremonially uncleaned and were put out of the community for that reason. It was those at the lowest part of society. The lowest part of, this, of the world's social hierarchy. Almost in every case. Now, remember, he's, he's setting us an example here. He's giving us a pattern to follow. Does Jesus mean for us to reach out and serve the literal thieves and the literal prostitutes Of Fort Worth, yeah, he does. But you may be thinking just the same thing that I was when, as I was reading through this. I don't know anybody like that, and you probably don't either. But there are people that we do know that are in a similar situation. We certainly know the social outcasts of our community. In every group of people, in every community, you get a bunch of people together, there's going to be some natural social hierarchy that's going to develop. There are going to be those people that are at the bottom. That's what's going to happen naturally. You know where this is most apparent is in schools. Probably middle schools, maybe worst of all, where you can see this hierarchy in all of its filth. I bet every kid here, every middle school student, could think right now, and maybe even though those we've all been in middle school, you can think back of that kid, of the social outcast of your class. He probably didn't talk much. He sat alone at lunch. Didn't have any friends probably. Probably very awkward, maybe the few times you did talk to him. Jesus calls us to love that person. To serve him. To go out of your way to sacrifice for that person, the lowest in our social hierarchy. Now, He's not calling us to do this as some sort of religious project that we can go do. Well, Jesus says to, so I'm going to go do this and feel good about myself and doing it. He doesn't call us to that for that reason. He calls us to this because this is what our Savior and our King has done. This is what He's done for us. We are those people. We are those who are the outcasts. Now, maybe not socially, maybe not in our world's eyes, but this is who we were. Helpless. Now, I know at this point, there might be some sort of discomfort. You think about actually doing this. This is going to be very uncomfortable. There could be suffering involved, even if it's some sort of social pressure Jesus recognizes that as well. Uh, he, this is what He's talking about in verse 39. He mentions to James and John that they will, be, they will drink this cup, that they will be baptized with this. He's talking about some sort of general suffering there. But here's what I don't want, want us all to be thinking, because this is my tendency, to, to say after reading something like this, this is completely unrealistic. That this, is, this is completely unattainable. That's fine to get up and preach this passage and talk about it some... But we know that come Monday morning, this is not going to happen. That's what I don't want us to think about this morning. And this is how I feel when I read a lot of what Jesus says. I've been reading through the Gospels this year, and I was just struck afresh by how many things Jesus says where I just go, this is, you've got to be kidding me almost. This is impossible. I can't do this. Listen to what Francis Schaeffer says about this. He, referring to Jesus, was not speaking in hyperbole or uttering a romantic idiom. Jesus Christ is the realist of all realists. And when He says this to us, He's telling us something specific that we are to do. Now, this is where we have to keep in mind what Jesus has said in this passage about His own death. This is where we have to constantly return to the gospel, because if we lose sight of that, then we're stuck back in some sort of moralism. We need to flee to Christ Himself and fall before Him in humble dependence and letting Him know, Jesus, this seems unattainable. I can't do this. That's where we need to be is in that position. We've got to recognize that He is the one building His kingdom. He's going to bring these things about in us by His grace. We're not going it alone here. He is the only one here who's actually going to put to death this love of self in us. He's going to enable us to turn from that sin that seems so paralyzing. That seems so captivating. Here's what he says in chapter 8. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. It's by His grace that we can actually obey what He calls us to here. We can live as members of the kingdom by the ethics of the kingdom that He calls us to, completely of His grace. Now, again, this kind of change does not come overnight, and this is where we get discouraged, is because we read something like this and say this is impossible, it's unattainable, and because, you know, nothing happens this week, nothing happens next week. Maybe six months from now, I'm still struggling. Maybe five years from now, I'm still struggling. That is not to say, though, that actual change is not really happening in your life, because it is. That's His promise to us. His Spirit is at work in us to bring these things about. So this puts us in a position where we should fall before Jesus, pleading with Him that He would actually make us into a church that loves and serves one another that way, and that loves and serves Fort Worth that way. And Darwin has pointed this out before. How can he not answer a prayer like that? An earnest plea from his people saying, Lord, help us to love one another in this way. Help me put to death my love of self. Help me to love these people that I find so difficult to love. He's not going to say no to that prayer. How can He? This is His promise to us is to bring this about in us. Let's go before Him now and pray for that very thing. Oh Lord Jesus, we look to Your Word and it is daunting to us. If we take this seriously, it feels unattainable. It feels unrealistic. It feels like almost even talking about it is just playing some game of Christianity rather than actually believing it. But Lord, we know that You call us to this. And not only do You call us to this, but You've set a pattern for us in Your own death. And You've enabled us to live this way by the power of Your resurrection that now resides within us as we are united to You. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring about this change in us. We pray that your kingdom would be advanced because of how you begin to work in us, that we would love one another, that we would serve one another, that we would become slaves to all and forsake our own selfish desires and our own desire for power and status in this world. Lord, this won't happen apart from your work in us, so we plead with you that you would do that. And we. Pray confidently and expectantly that you will. In Christ's name,
0: amen.
1: Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe. To this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.
0: Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, Oh, come with blissful rain. Radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away Then shall my soul with rapture trace The wonders of thy love.